This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Brought to you by True North. Coming up, inflation, taxes, and regulations. Oh my, will this new year bring hope or more of the same for Canadian taxpayers? Franco Terrazano's with me for the whole show. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. A happy new year to all of you. We are uh, so glad to have you tuning in as we go onward and upward into whatever 2023 has in store for us. And while it's not the beginning of a new fiscal year in any formal sense, it is an opportunity for reset for New Year's resolutions. Perhaps we as taxpayers can make some of our own. I wanted to do a little bit of a year in review for the fiscal situation of 2022 and also a look ahead whether there's reason for optimism or not we'll find out in a couple of moments and for that there is no one better than Franco Terrazano the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco happy new year to you good to have you back on the show. Hey my pleasure thanks for having me on. Now, I mean, the issue that I think is most important for most Canadians, and certainly over the last few weeks, this has been the case, and I'd say much of the last year is is inflation. And you were kind enough to join me earlier this year on a, a panel we did on the show about that. And unfortunately, no one was heeding your wisdom who uh, was occupying a seat in government because a lot of these problems continued to get worse and have continued and are continuing. Well, this is, I think, the key economic issue facing most Canadians, right? Just the simple fact that we can't afford gasoline, that we can't afford uh, groceries, and that we're having a tough time paying our heating bills. This inflation, this is the tough thing. And I think the natural question is, well, what is the cause of all this inflation? Sure, there's many different uh, influences that may change prices day to day, but let's not mistake this. Our government has created the perfect storm for inflation massive money printing, uh, never-ending deficits, tax hikes. During the pandemic, we saw the Bank of Canada, the federal government's crown corporation, print more than $300 billion right out of thin air and then dump it into economy that was largely shut down for two years, right? Too many dollars chasing too few goods. Now, to add insult to injury, we then see our federal government raise prices at the till, alcohol taxes up. The carbon tax up, which, by the way, the entire point of the carbon tax is to be inflationary. And then to make matters even worse, the government continues to take more money from our pockets through its payroll tax hikes. Yeah, and I I mean, at the end of it, the problem with inflation as an issue is is that it is the product of many different inputs. It isn't just one thing. And I, I think that oftentimes government fails to understand, certainly this government in Canada fails to understand all the things they're doing that are contributing to it. And I mean, just to look at the grocery numbers, for example, there was that report that came out in early December that uh, found uh, Canadians were going to be spending about $1,000 a year more, a Canadian family uh, for uh, this year than in 2022. So 
when you see numbers like that, anything that costs $200 a year is relevant. Anything that costs $50 a year is relevant. And when you have all of these different things that may be responsible for $100, bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks a year, this adds up to a pretty significant amount. Well, it sure does, Andrew. And, you know, if I could just push back slightly, is that I do think the government understands exactly what it's doing, at least to some degree. At least well, with this I carbon publicly tax. acknowledge, I guess, should have been the word. That's <laughs> yeah, a fair, fair yeah. call out. I think, I think, yeah, absolutely. But look, I think it's time to stop pretending that the government has no idea that its carbon tax, for example, is rising the price of gasoline. I mean, that's the whole point of the carbon tax is to make it more expensive every time you go to fuel up your car to make it more expensive for you to use natural gas. In fact, let's not kid ourselves here. I think the Trudeau government is patting itself on the back every time it drives by the ESO and sees those high gas prices. And not just that, but we're seeing beginning in 2023 in, in July, a second carbon tax coming in through fuel regulations. And guess who's gonna be most impacted by that second carbon tax? Well, it's right in the government's own analysis. The Canadians who are, who are lower and middle income, the people who are struggling with energy poverty already, the single mothers, the seniors living on fixed income. Again, that's right in the government's own analysis. So the government knows that it's driving up the cost of living and is making things worse. Yeah, I, I think you're bang on there. And, and you know, one of the big shameful aspects of this is how absent the NDP has been from this. I mean, every now and then Jagmeet Singh will get up there and talk about, oh, you know, Canadians need a break and, and whatever. But the NDP was uh, lockstep supporting the Liberal budget and has committed to, by giving them a blank check until 2025, the NDP has supported tooth and nail the carbon tax. So there really isn't any chance or hasn't been up to this point of, of there being any reprieve from this. I mean, the Conservatives can, you know, talk a, a big talk as they have, and I don't mean that in a, a judgmental way, but they're up against a pretty strong coalition. Well, and, you know, naturally, when, when we point out the fact that it's, the Trudeau government does know what it's doing, rising the price of gasoline with its carbon tax hikes, the first question I think your listeners or anyone would ask is, well, okay, Franco, then why are they doing it? Well, it's about electoral politics. Trudeau's carbon tax is about politics, not the environment. And I have some information to prove that. Beginning this year, every single taxpayer in every single province in Canada will have to pay Trudeau's mandatory minimum carbon tax rate. Well, correction, every province but Quebec. Let me break down the numbers. Beginning this year, you're going to see Trudeau's carbon tax rate cost everyone else in Canada 14 cents per liter of gasoline. In Quebec, the carbon tax just has to stay above five cents per liter of gasoline. Now that price difference is gonna get bigger and bigger. In 2030, Canadians in nine provinces will have to pay 37 cents per liter of gasoline. Quebec's carbon tax will be 23 cents per liter of gasoline. So clearly Trudeau is giving uh, the province of Quebec, a special deal when it comes to carbon taxes. Clearly, this isn't fair. And one more thing, it's not because Quebec has a provincial carbon tax or cap and trade carbon tax, because Nova Scotia currently has a very similar provincial tax as Quebec. Nova Scotia is also reducing emissions, but Trudeau is bullying Nova Scotians and making them pay a higher carbon tax 
later this year while it is giving Quebec preferential treatment. Now, I know why they're doing it, because you can never, ever trample on anything Quebec. You have to just give Quebec what they want. But how does the government say this is justified? What does the government, how do they rationalize that? Well, the government isn't rationalizing it. In fact, the government's trying to sweep it under the rug. The government is hoping people don't notice. Um, You know, we've had some members of parliament email back our Canadian Taxpayers Federation supporters um, essentially trying to play word games with our supporters saying, no, 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 uh, there isn't a special deal. It's because Quebec chose to have a provincial carbon tax. But hold on a second. Other provinces were also trying to have their own provincial carbon tax. As I mentioned, Nova Nova Scotia currently has a very similar Uh, provincial cap and trade carbon tax as Quebec. In fact, since 2005, Nova Scotia has reduced emissions significantly more than Quebec has. And it has done that with the lowest carbon tax on gasoline. So this isn't about, as some of the Liberal members of Parliament are trying to suggest, that one province just has its own provincial carbon tax. No, this is all about politics. Now, Andrew, of course, we think the solution is simple. Just get rid of the Trudeau carbon tax. It's all economic pain. It drives up the price of gas. It drives up the price of home heating. It drives up the price of groceries at the worst possible time. And it's not doing anything to help the environment. No, and, and you know, it actually is particularly disgusting, that disparity between Quebec and the rest of Canada, when you uh, go back, as I did, to the Supreme Court arguments that the federal government was putting forward and also at the uh, provincial court levels, in which they said, no, 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 it has to be national. It has to be for every province in the country. And they really stressed that point that provinces couldn't just go at it alone and do their own thing if their thing was less than what the federal government was demanding of them. But, but all of a sudden with Quebec, that's fine. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Look, all provinces are equal, but one province is a little more equal in the eyes of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Isn't that the case right now? Hey, Andrew? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Some Animal Farm-esque qualities uh, across the board there. And we talk about the bigger picture of of this. I, I mean, Pierre Polyev was very much maligned by the media when he was talking about really in his view that the Bank of Canada has failed and that the Bank of Canada governor needed to uh, be fired. And everyone said, oh, no, you can't say that. You're not allowed to talk about that. But I mean, you are right when you identify that printing money has been a major contributing factor to what's been happening. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Of course it has. Of course it has. I mean, what do you think happens when you print hundreds of billions of dollars right out of thin air, and then you drop it into an economy that has been largely on and off shut down for two years. Of course, that's going to drive prices. But look, hold on a second, right? Like, let's even just say that the Bank of Canada isn't the major driver of inflation, just for the sake of the argument. Okay, well, at worst, you have the Bank of Canada driving inflation. At best, the Bank of Canada failed to do its only job. 
right? If, if you've gone to a grocery store or a gas station in the last year or so, you know that the Bank of Canada failed to do its only job, which is to keep inflation low and around 2%. Okay, even the Bank of Canada has acknowledged that it failed to hit the inflation target and that the Bank of Canada should be held accountable. Well, hold on a second. The Bank of Canada isn't being held accountable. In fact, the Bank of Canada gave its employees $45 million in bonuses and pay raises during the pandemic years of 2020 and 2021 while it failed to do its only job. So why are we giving $45 million in bonuses and raises to these failing central bankers? I mean, Andrew, I can't believe I have to say this, but bonuses and pay raises are for when you do a good job. Yeah, failing upward seems to be a general trend in politics. We have members of parliament getting pandemic pay raises while locking people down and denying them the ability to work. And, and similarly, when inflation is at a point that is untenable for Canadians, you have a Bank of Canada staff that are somehow coming out ahead. And I wish it stopped there, but that's just the beginning of it. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Our our uh, our favorite state broadcaster, the CBC, fifty one million in bonuses and raises during the pandemic. And then, by the way, the recent budget update just gave the CBC another forty two million dollars. So the CBC is getting an extra forty two million dollars to help it deal with its pandemic issues, just after giving fifty one million in bonuses and raises to its employees during the pandemic. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, another federal crown corporation that is no stranger to the taxpayer cookie jar, gave its employees $60 million in bonuses and raises during 2020 and 2021. Now, what's so interesting about that? Well, the CMHC has one overall objective according to its own website, housing affordability for all. Well, what happened in 2020 and 2021? Canadians couldn't afford to buy homes. So why is the CMHC patting itself on the back and handing out millions and millions in bonuses and raises? Now, if your listener's blood isn't already pumping, I've got one more example for you all. Bring it on, let's hear it. Destination Canada. Now this one might be the worst. So Destination Canada is a federal crown corporation that is supposed to be uh, marketing our tourism sector. Well, in 2020 and 2021, what happened to our restaurants? What happened to Canada's tourism industry? It was locked down. It was decimated. It was illegal for people to travel to Canada, right, from outside of the country. Despite all of this, Destination Canada still handed out millions in bonuses and pay raises, while the people they were supposed to be marketing took it on the chin. That that one's a fascinating one because, you know, airlines, I, I've got a lot of issues with airlines in Canada, don't get me wrong, but when airlines were unable to fly people around because of uh, myriad COVID restrictions, they had to lay, lay people off. And it's unfortunate and I don't like anyone losing their job, but if there's no work to do, that strikes me as the, the logical thing. Whereas with Destination Canada, there's no tourism to promote and somehow they're making more money. It's, it's the tale of two pandemics. The tale of two pandemics. The people in the private sector took it on the chin, lost jobs, took pay cuts, maybe even lost their business. But not those who are behind the golden gates of government. They even financially benefited during the pandemic, right? The pay raises, the one, the two, the three pay raises for politicians during the pandemic. The pay raises for more than 300,000 federal government employees. The bonuses for 
federal government employees, Crown Corporation employees. This is one of the fundamental unfairness issues around the pandemic. Like there is a lot of different issues to, to dissect on what happened during COVID-19. But I think one of the biggest and key issues is between the makers and takers. The people who were hurt by the pandemic restrictions, the private sector taxpayers, the workers for businesses, the people who own businesses are the ones who are gonna have to face a higher tax bill to pay for all of this government largesse, the pay raises, the bonuses that happened during a time when their neighbors in the private sector were struggling dearly. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. And, and you know, the big challenge of it all is that, you know, I said earlier, it's death by a thousand cuts in a way, and that you have all of these different programs and initiatives that independently, some of them are, are bad enough, but you put them all into one basket and it, it's massive. And, and CBC is a great example of this. I mean, the $40 million is unfortunately a rounding error in some context for the Canadian budget, but you look at the overall $1.3, $1.4 billion, that is a lot of money if CBC could just be pushed onto the private sector. I'm not saying we get rid of it. I'm saying we get rid of it as a government project. Yeah, taxpayers shouldn't be funding the media. It's that simple. So defund the CBC and end the media bailout. It, it, it really should be as and simple that, as that. Those two things alone save $2 billion a year. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, right? I mean, remember the CBC is getting a billion every single year. The media bailout when it was first announced was about $600 million. But look, we're, when you talk about a, a death by a thousand cuts, when a government can't do the small things right, when you find out that it costs taxpayers $1.3 million so the governor general and her entourage can go to the Middle East for a week, when you find out that somebody in the government spent $6,000, somebody who was it, spent $6,000 per night on a single hotel room, when you find out that the government is spending $8,000 on a sex toy show in Germany, well, these little things, when the government can't do the little things right, guess what happens? The government can't do the big things right either. Let me give you an example. Back last April for the budget 2022, we saw essentially the biggest spending budget in Canadian history. The budget said the government would spend $452 billion in 2022. That's $90 billion more than pre-pandemic spending which was already at all-time highs, even after accounting for inflation and population growth. Well, then in November of 2022, Ms. Freeland, our finance minister, comes out with the mid-year budget update. And it shows that the government is now on track to spend $472 billion. So what does that mean? It means that in just seven months, halfway through a year, the government, Ms. Freeland, was somehow managing to spend $20 billion over budget, $20 billion over her big spending budget that she penned only half a year earlier. Now, what does $20 billion mean? Instead of spending $20 billion over budget, Freeland could cut the sales tax from five to 3% and still reduce the deficit. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering why your tax bill seems to go up and up and up year after year after year, well, you're paying too much tax because the government wastes way too much money. 
Yeah, and it is truly relentless in that sense. And I, I want to go back for a moment to that point you made about if they can't do the small things right, how are they going to do the big things? Because another issue that uh, CTF has been very strong on, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, is C-11, which is the government's internet regulation bill, which uh, unfortunately has not been getting nearly the resistance it should have been from other parties in Parliament. Just the Conservatives were really standing up against this. But uh, effectively, C-11, for those who haven't been following, and I, I don't judge you, but I don't know how you've been able to get through and, and not hear it if you haven't. But C-11 basically expands the government's regulatory capacity that exists right now on TV and radio to the internet. So something like that does not happen without ballooning the size of bureaucracy, but also uh, ballooning the size of government's control of what you see on your computer. They say, oh, we have to elevate Canadian content. Now, maybe that means more of my show. I don't know if I'm the type of Canadian content the government wants. Maybe it means more of you, Franco. Canadians will be better off for it. But this wasn't on the surface to a lot of people a, a tax issue as much as it was a an internet freedom issue. So why did you and the CTF lean in on this so heavily? Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Well, the CTF, us at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we fight for three, I would say, simple but very powerful ideals. Number one, lower taxes. <laughs> Two, less waste. And number three, more government accountability. Now, we see Bill C-11, the online censorship bill, as a threat to government accountability. Now, the last people who should be telling us good folks here in Canada how to hold our politicians accountable are the unelected bureaucrats in Ottawa, the unelected bureaucrats in Ottawa who would see more power under this bill. And I think, look, if, if we've noticed one thing in terms of accountability during the pandemic is really the importance of online accountability, right? Whether it's sharing a story on Facebook or sharing something on Twitter or watching an online news source on one of these social media platforms. Well, if the government has more of an ability to crack down on the content or, or to influence the content, a better way to put it, of what we're seeing online, well, that limits fundamentally the ability of Canadian taxpayers to hold the government accountable. So that's why we jumped into this fight, because we are worried that Bill C-11 will limit Canadians' ability to hold their politicians, to hold their governments to account. Yeah, and one of the most insidious parts of this all has been the government's failure to articulate at each stage of this debate what the bill actually is. And part of this has been, I think, Stephen Gilbo's fault. And, and part of it has been that I think the government got busted on this and didn't think they were going to. And they've been just so wildly over the map about what this thing actually does. Oh, it's not for user content. Oh, it's not for media. But okay, yes, it is. And, it's, and, and now it's like at a certain point, they've muddled it so much that I don't even think they can tell you what's regulated and what's not. Yeah, it's been as clear as mud. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> 
Yeah, look, and, and Gilboa I mean, in particular, I think, has been the weak link on this. And and the the claim that we will not regulate what you as a user publish is, I, I don't think, particularly accurate given the text of the bill. But beyond that, it is that it sets up the government for having the ability to force someone like you, for example, who wants to publish videos on YouTube to have a license to do so if the government feels that you qualify for uh, whatever they say is captured by this bill. Yeah, I mean, without getting just too into the weeds, right, if a government is trying to encourage any type of of um, product, any type of video, if it, to encourage one thing, you must be discouraging something else, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, so fundamentally, we don't believe that the government has a role to play outside of the criminal code, right, outside of the criminal code when it comes to determining uh, what videos we see on our social media platforms. We have noticed over the last two years in particular, just how important it is to hold our governments accountable for us to be able to share videos or share content on social media. And we are very, very concerned that by giving these unelected bureaucrats here in Ottawa more control over what we see online, that we are going to be reducing all of our ability to hold these politicians accountable. And uh, let's let's be honest, our politicians really need to be held accountable right now. Yeah, very much agree with that. Uh, let's turn to another big picture federal item. Now, this one's obviously been in the news uh, for different reasons the last few weeks, but the government's approach to firearms. And again, people may think that gun rights are not a taxpayer issue on the surface, but they are when you look at the cost of having to buy back lawfully owned and lawfully acquired firearms. I don't even like the term buy back because they were never the governments in the first place, but to to, uh, compensate while confiscating uh, firearms that were lawfully owned. And, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past. It's amazing how much the government has spent without even buying a single gun. Millions. It's already spent millions of dollars without buying a single gun. Now, Andrew, let me just preface this whole conversation. To be honest, man, I, I don't have a gun. I have nothing, nothing against people who have guns. I'm just never been a gun person, but I'll tell you what I am against a taxpayer boondoggle that does absolutely nothing to improve public safety. So when the liberal party, when they first announced their intentions to have this gun ban and buy back the confiscation, the confiscation and compensation uh, to, to, to use your term there, Andrew, when they first announced this, it was going to be a few hundred million. All right, that's already large enough for a program that isn't going to improve public safety. However, we continue to see, like many other things with this government, the bill go up and up and up and up. The parliamentary budget officer released a report that said that just just compensating gun owners, just compensating gun owners could cost up to $756 million. So significantly higher uh, than the original estimate. But again, That's just the money to actually compensate gun owners. That doesn't include perhaps the most costliest part of running this whole program, which is actually administering and staffing what a gun buyback would be. Because remember, um, this would be a, a, um, a quite legitimately big task for the government to actually do to have all these different types of collection centers, uh, to make sure that you have the RCMP essentially uh, transporting the guns, right? This is a big task. And we have saw the Fraser Institute put out a report that when you include all the costs with the gun ban and buyback, the tab would be billions and billions of dollars. But here's the thing. Not only is it going to cost 
most likely billions of dollars, but it's not going to make Canada more safe. Andrew, maybe I'm just skeptical of government, but I don't think there's going to be too many gangsters showing up to government offices handing in their guns. No, this is yeah, just waiting. Although it depends what they're offering. I mean, maybe it's more advantageous if the government is offering a competitive enough price for gangsters to just like steal more guns and then just turn them in just to keep getting compensation from the government. Oh my goodness, could you imagine? But but here's the problem, I mean, right? Yeah, it'll be like the Iran Contra thing, the, the Canadian version of it at a certain point. But I, I should say also, when when you started out on this and, and the CTF started out on this, it was for a, an initial ban and buyback that was announced in May of 2020. Now, since then, the government has uh, gradually, and I'd say more recently, has accelerated this, banning even more guns. So I'd say those are very lowball estimates, given that the government keeps adding to the list of guns that it might need to buy back. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Yeah, that's a very, very good clarification. And, you know, we're talking about how Bill C-11 has been as clear as mud. Well, this new addition to the gun ban and buyback has has been even uh, less transparent, right? It's been about as transparent as a coconut. Uh, It's tough to know exactly what's going on. And when you listen to some of the committee meetings, I don't even know if if many of the uh, members of parliament here in Ottawa know what's going on with what has been added here. Um, But let's go back to the point about public safety, because I think we all want to live in a safe Canada with safe communities. I think we all agree with that. Well, the union that represents the Mounties, they say that this gun ban and buyback isn't going to make Canada safe because it doesn't address the key issues, which is preventing the illegal flow of guns across the border or illegal gang activity. In fact, the RCMP union says that this can make Canada less safe because it's diverting resources away from, from you know, cracking down on the legitimate, legitimate criminals and pushing resources to cracking down on law-abiding Canadian citizens. Yeah, I, I would very much uh, agree with that. And and I just want to, as we're running out of time here, I, I want to circle back to the carbon tax for a moment, because I know this is a big issue. And it's one that I, I feel is one of the most winnable for uh, people that are opposed to the carbon tax right now, because when all of the cost of living stuff that we were talking about earlier on comes to roost and people see, wow, the government is forcing me to spend more on these just basic necessities in my life, which contrary to how people in downtown Toronto might think uh, are actually necessities for people in, in many parts of the country here. And politically speaking, in the last election, the Conservatives, I think, did something very wrong, which was uh, come out after unequivocally saying in the past no carbon tax with their own version of a carbon tax in the 2021 election. I know the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, criticized that. Now we have a new Conservative leader who, as I understand it, has been very, very clear on opposing the carbon tax, correct? That is correct. I remember the last leader of the Conservative Party, I can't remember his name, Uh, he broke the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's pledge, right? Remember, he signed our pledge saying that he would scrap the carbon tax and replace it with nothing. Well, unfortunately for him, Canadians aren't stupid. Canadians have a a good memory. And look, um, so so he lost, uh, the voters essentially said, no, thank you. 
He lost. He's out of the way. Now you have a new leader, Mr. Pierre Polyev. He said he would scrap the carbon tax. Um, he said he would replace it with nothing. And Mr. Polyev is also on the record against the second carbon tax that is coming in through fuel regulations. Now, one thing I want to talk about is how the Trudeau government is misleading Canadians, fundamentally playing word games with Canadians. We keep hearing the Trudeau government say or claim that its carbon tax and rebate scheme is going to make people better off. Well, Andrew, if you think that the government's going to tax everyone, then skim some off the top and then give you some of your money back and you think you're going to be better off, well, then I've got some ocean view property in Regina that I want to sell you. But look, the parliamentary budget officer has been very, very clear that the Trudeau government is using magic math. And in fact, the carbon tax will cost households hundreds and hundreds of dollars every single year, even after the rebates. Let me read you the numbers right from the PBO. In 2023, the carbon tax will cost the average household anywhere between $400 all the way up to about $850, even after the rebates. Again, hundreds and hundreds of dollars every single year, even after the rebates. Wow. Again, numbers like that. I mean, they, they, they may seem abstract on paper, but these have very real consequences for people. Oh, yeah. At a time when people, like I said, are, are struggling to afford, uh, you know, taco night with their family. Um, an extra 400, an extra $850 for people whose paychecks are already too, are stretched too thin. Uh, it's, it's disastrous for some people and it's coming at the worst possible time. And, and one thing I do also want to point out is that while Ottawa continues to stick Canadians with higher tax bills, many other countries are doing the right thing and cutting taxes. We found 51 other national governments that have cut taxes during the pandemic or to ease the pain of inflation. More than half of G7 and G20 countries, two thirds of OECD countries have cut taxes. Ottawa raised the carbon tax, raised payroll taxes, raised alcohol taxes, and is bringing in a second carbon tax. So other countries are finding out a way to do the right thing. Ottawa continues to raise our gas prices and our heating bills. I'll end on this question, Franco, and I fear I know the answer, but I have to ask it anyway. Are you, as we head into this new year, an optimist or a pessimist? Oh, man, I, I feel like I've been a rain cloud this whole interview, right? Raining, rain, a little rain cloud. But you know what? No, man, I, I'm actually an optimist. Um, look, I, I, things are bad. I, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything new there. Things have been very tough. We've seen the government just pile on more debt, more debt, more debt, raise taxes, raise taxes, raise taxes, and spend out of control. But I do think more and more Canadians are, are waking up. And uh, it is thanks to a lot of great Canadian Taxpayers Federation supporters who are out there um, spreading the message. It's, it's, it's thanks to, to people like you who have us on our show and, and other groups on your show to, to talk to your audience. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I, I am an optimist, but it depends. It depends on the Canadians who are listening to this to take action, right? Because it's one thing just to listen, but then you actually have to do something about it, right? You have to share the information. Uh, with your families. You have to email your politicians. You have to call your politicians. You have to take part in democracy if you want change. So I am optimistic, but it definitely depends on uh, how Canadians react and if, if, if we take action. I like that. Optimism with an asterisk, and that asterisk is a call to action. So uh, very well done. Keep up the fight on your end. You do great work, and I look forward to having you on the program over the coming year as well. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure, and Happy New Year, sir. Hey, I hope you had a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. 
That was Franco Terrazano. Always good to have him on. And I like that he delivers the bad news with a smile and somehow makes you think that there was some good news in there. So uh, let's hold to the positive as we head on into this new year. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We will talk to you soon with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.